0: Welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Linda Lloyd, and today my guest is Deborah Goldstein, talking about her book, Two Bites Too Many. Deborah's book, Maze in Blue, set on the University of Michigan campus, was the 2012 IPPY Award winner. Two Bites Too Many, that we'll be discussing today, is book number two in the Sarah Blair Mystery Series and is published by Kensington. Welcome, Deborah. We appreciate you being with us on Book Talk today.
1: Well, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here.
0: Good. Well, I always love reading the dedications. And you dedicated Two Bites Too Many to your children and grandchildren who drive you crazy and keep you sane. And I really like that. And I thought, You know, I bet Sarah Blair, the star of this series, probably feels the same way about her mother and her sister.
1: There's no question. I think that the way I write, it's a family-oriented type mystery or a family-oriented type book. And I had a mother who can drive me crazy. I have children who can drive me crazy, but I love all of them at the same time. And that's a way that I wanted to bring it through in my books.
0: And Sarah and her sister Emily, who is a very accomplished chef, are twins. Yes. But they're about as alike as day and night, right?
1: They are day and night. Sarah's idea of being in the kitchen is that if you do anything from scratch, murder's more frightening. She's petrified of it. And to be honest, that is sort of my sister and myself. I am the mother of twins, so I stole from that. But my sister and I are exactly polar opposites when it comes to cooking and most other things, too.
0: And is she an accomplished?
1: Michelle cook. is a fantastic cook. Okay. When we were growing up, Linda, I stole a little bit. Don't use much of the family in the book, per se, truth-wise. But I stole a little bit. I used to literally come home every afternoon, lie on the couch at 5 o'clock. Perry Mason would be on the reruns. I would watch it, and at 5.15, I would run upstairs and empty the dishwasher. My mother and my sister, who was shadowing her, were in the kitchen at 5.30 I would go up and set the table because those were the commercial breaks.
0: Oh, wow.
1: 5.45 exactly was when my father would walk in. I'd wave hello. And at 6, right after they did the last little scene in Perry Mason, I went upstairs because that was dinner time. So I never got to see the credits. Well, that's probably okay, though. At least you got to see the end. And Michelle became a wonderful cook as well as other accomplished things. And I went on to become a lawyer. And that makes sense because that's what Sarah
0: aspires to do. But Sarah had a different time in One Taste Too Many. She explains how she got married right out of high school. Correct. To a guy who turned out to be a jerk.
1: A jerk or a rat, whatever you want to call him. And he actually
0: tried to steal her inheritance and did, right?
1: In a sense, yes.
0: And that's the reason that she and her sister were chief murder suspects in the first
1: book. Very much so. What I wanted to do, I like to put sub-issues in. My books are meant to be beach reads, fun reads, but you still need to have issues in them, but you don't want to beat the reader over the head with them. And in her own way, Sarah was married at 18, divorced at 28, and in between, he controlled her in a lot of ways. So in a way, you have some mental abuse in there, and she has to come back from that. So I think as you see the progression of the series, you will see her grow and mature and come into herself. Well, and she's
0: learning as she goes, because in book two, she knows almost right off the bat when they start accusing her mother, Maybell, of murder,
1: that the chief of police is probably not really going to do his job. That's correct. I wanted to, again, stay with a family member, but I wanted Sarah to be a little stronger this time. You know, much as she may want to eventually become something more professional, she's working her way up. Right now she works in a law firm as a receptionist, but she really respects her boss, who's Harlan Endicott. But she still knows that she can't leave it to the professionals. Otherwise we wouldn't have a cozy mystery.
0: Absolutely. And when she and her mother are one are two of the last people to see Lance, the banker, alive. But they know Sarah didn't come back, but that her mother did come back into the bank, and she's the one who discovered him murdered.
1: She's the one with blood on her hands. She reached over, touched, and therefore she's the best suspect. It's almost like a locked room situation because when she screams and everybody runs in, she and the body are the only things in his office.
0: And Sarah has to help work to figure out exactly what's going on. And no there's question. a lot of ins and outs and a lot of suspects.
1: That was my goal. I think that when I write a mystery, I'm hoping both in the first book, One Taste Too Many and in Two Bites Too Many, that I'll have enough suspects to make you have to think about those and also to give you some red herrings here and there. I want you to have to think a little because I don't think you're going to enjoy it unless you can really enjoy the who done it aspect.
0: Right, because you don't want to know right off the bat who did it unless there's some other story going on that's, you know, totally different.
1: Well, in the free years when I was working in my other career, I would use these kind of books as my relief. They were the fun books. I could read a few of them cross-country, flying and things like that. But I was always frustrated if I could p- figure out the murderer on page one. So my goal is that I'm not doing that, I hope, for you.
0: No, not at all. But
1: everything's laid out. If you go back, the clues are there.
0: They are, but in both books, I didn't expect it to be the person it turned out to be.
1: I'm delighted because I know yeah. you read so many books.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I was surprised by the ending on both. I kind of suspected in book two more than in book one totally blew me away because it was like, no. Thank you. Yeah, and book two was almost like that. It really was.
1: Well, there's a story behind book one. I started writing that book, and it was flowing. At some point, I'm sure we'll go into my past writing, but I was writing that book because I'd been told, write something new, and I was. And it was flowing along, and unfortunately, my mom passed away during that period. And I couldn't write. I stopped. And then when I started again, that joy wasn't there. And I wrote the remainder. The book just didn't work. And you know when you write something, which I will term crappy. I put it down, and I wasn't going to do anything with it. And I kept thinking about it, and I realized, you pushed the wrong killer. You have all the other things there. So I threw out half of the book, and I started writing again. And the joy was back, because now I knew I was going in the right direction. And the irony is, when I looked back, I had already been laying the clues for the person who it turns out to be. You know, my mind had said, it's going to be this one, but that's not who it was going to be. The characters talked to me.
0: Well, that's what I was going to ask you, because I've had other authors say that the book didn't turn out the way they expected. I mean, the characters almost write it themselves. Mm -hmm. I think they do. Well, do you think you're enough like Sarah based on what you've done in the past or being a judge, an attorney, a mother? You wear a lot of hats. Do you think that helps with your character
1: development? I hope so. I will say I'm different than Sarah, I did not get married at 18. I got married closer to 30. I've never been divorced. He's still hanging around. I don't know why, but um, he is. I was a stepmom and mom. Sarah is not a mother. There's no children in there. We've had animals and things like that. And I am petrified at the kitchen. You know, I freak out and I cook to music and things. I mean, I do odd things. But yes, I do think some of my background works very well for how Sarah thinks. Other times... I have no idea where she's going.
0: Well, and a lot of times Sarah probably doesn't either, especially since her social life exists of the animal shelter, right?
1: (laughs) I think somebody wrote it up as, except for some flea-bitten animals, which I think is very mean because the shelter would not have flea-bitten animals. But except for the animals that she walks every Saturday morning, that's the only constant in her social life.
0: Well, and we know Ra-Ra wouldn't be flea-bitten because he's wealthy.
1: Yes. Her cat is
0: wealthy. (laughs) Explain that story.
1: Okay. Well, in the first book, what you discover is that Rara had been rescued by a woman named Mother who is called Mother Blair. Mother Blair is actually the rat's mother. And the rat was smart enough to get his mom to move to Wheaton, Alabama, which is the town I created, because he really wanted part of her money to invest in things. She brings the cat with her. Sarah and the cat and the mother-in-law got very close. So even after the divorce, Sarah kept visiting with the cat. The cat, in the end, was left a legacy. So in book one, everybody is after the legacy, you might say. The um, ex-husband's bimbo chases after it. By the time you get to the second book, you realize because of an animal trust, Rara is probably more wealthy than most of the people in town.
0: Exactly. And I'm sure that that probably is interesting for a town like Wheaton, Alabama. Right. Which, tell me a little bit more about the town, because it's like a bedroom community to Birmingham, right? Yes.
1: What I did was I created a small southern town. When I think of a cozy, I think it needs a small town, has to be confined space of some kind. And I wanted it to be near a bigger city so I could go back and forth, but I wanted it to be in its own little world that people didn't have to go back and forth. When my first book had come out and I was doing signings a few years back, I went to a uh, Murder on the Magic City and Murder in on the Menu. Those are conferences held in Birmingham and in Wetumpka, Alabama. Okay. I don't know if you've ever been to No,
0: w- I never even heard of it, actually.
1: Wetumpka is about an hour and a half, hour and 15 minutes out of Birmingham. Okay. You drive through fields and things till you get there, so it's much more rural. But when you get there and you come over the bridge— you see the beautiful white church with the steeple. You did. I, unfortunately, one of the tornadoes just took it out in the oh, last wow. year or two. But you see the small town. I loved it because when I did the signing there, you were doing it for Fowl, which I'm sure you would appreciate being where your studio is. It was Friends of the Wetumpka Library. Okay. And they do a luncheon, and all these people come and support it. Anyway, I fell in love with it. It's got a little river walk area. It's got the old marble buildings. It's got the square. It also happens to have, because of Indian money, it has a casino and everything, too, down the road. So you have a juxtaposition. I haven't put the casino in, but I stole the warmth and the people and the feeling I get when I drive into Wetumpka. And do you find that in
0: small towns, and not necessarily just southern towns, There's always an eccentric or two. Oh, yeah. And you've
1: got some in this book. There's always an eccentric or two. I grew up personally first in New Jersey in what you would call big city life. When I was 12, we moved to Jackson, Michigan, which basically is five miles square. That's the kind of town where you get on the back of your bicycle and you ride all over and your parents feel very comfortable about that. So I wanted to make that feeling. But there are eccentrics. I use Mr. Rogers, for example.
0: I thought that was really interesting that you use Mr. Rogers because Fred Rogers has been in the news lately. And this Mr. Rogers is not like that Mr. Rogers.
1: No, it isn't. And I really hadn't even thought of the correlation between the two because I wrote that book, you know, three, four years ago now. But I wanted him to be that type of neighbor that watches everything, that has definite opinions. I had a neighbor of my own when I first moved to Alabama. I was single back then, and I had an apartment. And the gentleman who lived below me was an 80 year old man who, most of the apartments in this particular building were single females. That was how the manager had placed us. But he would check out all our dates, and if he knew the boy and didn't think he was good, he would tell us.
0: Of course, he wouldn't keep his opinions to himself, exactly. just like this Mr. Rogers.
1: And he would walk around. You know, he didn't wear the bow tie, so I gave Mr. Rogers his bow tie, his little glasses and things but i wanted him to know and have his pulse on the town at the same time i want you to like him and i think with fluffy and all you do end up liking him right
0: and fluffy is a dog that he adopts because he finds it in his yard
1: right not because he
0: has to feed it or anything but then he finally gets her and he falls in love with her basically
1: and he discovers when he cleans her up a little white fluffy beautiful dog and he brings her trust when he is in a situation her trust comes through and her love of him comes through. At the same time, that's why Two Bites Too Many, I wanted to balance off cats and dogs in a sense, but Ra-Ra is still the king of the household.
0: So how did you come up with the Yip-Yow Day that Ra-Ra is actually the star of the show?
1: I started thinking about different animal things that I have heard of that people do to raise money for the shelters, for animals, for anything. In Birmingham, there is a, I think it's do dot day type thing, where everybody brings their dogs and things down to certain areas of a part of Birmingham, and they can throw Frisbees and just hang out. We used to have a thing called city stages, and I know Anniston, Alabama, has another thing like that, and I'm sure Memphis, from what I've heard, also does, where there'll be music and stages and different things, and people mm-hmm. can bring a blanket and hang out. And I decided that would be a great way to do three things at one time. Bring the whole city together so I'd have all the suspects in the same place. Right. Also, show the animals. Not only am I showcasing the animals in the parade and raising money because you have to pay a little something to get into the parade, but I'm also raising money for donations for the animal shelter in my book. And I'm also having an area that I have one of the characters build so they can put um, the animals in cages, kind of like you see periodically in fairs for adoption. So I wanted to bring all that in together. And that's why Yip Yow Day became funny. And I I was trying to think of a name for it. And I figured, well, one dog yips and one (laughs) yow. That's where it came from. I thought it was a
0: great idea. And because it's such a big part of Sarah's life, too, it kind of showcased her in a hope that it helped build some more confidence for her.
1: I think it does. The goal was... She didn't know if it would be successful or not. And that's not really where she was coming from. Other people were looking at it with different motivations. She was looking to help the animals. And I think that comes through. Oh, I agree. Thomas Howell,
0: one of the hoteliers, that's actually in Birmingham, right? He was looking at it from a completely different perspective.
1: No question. He
0: was looking at it typically for PR. Mm -hmm. And I think Jane, who was Sarah's rat husband's bimbo, also did the same thing.
1: I think a lot of folks do. I'm sure, Linda, you've worked on different charity things, and I know I have, and different boards, and you almost know who the worker bees are because they love the mission versus those who are always in the picture.
0: And that's a good way to put it, I think. And Eloise, she was the secretary, or I guess assistant is more appropriate, because she had been there a long time and been his right-hand person. Eloise got really involved as one of those back room kind of people, but she really wanted to be there because of her love for the animals and the mission and everything.
1: And because I think Eloise has a good streak in her. You know, you meet her, you know that she represents one type of woman in our culture. But again, I think she's a woman who is coming into her own too at a different age. And that was something I wanted to present. Most cozies, a lot of them have younger protagonists, like I do. She's 28 years old, and so she's exploring the world in a different way. Eloise and Maybelle are at a different point in their life. They're mature women, which I would say I am too, and we have a different perspective on things, but that doesn't mean we've died.
0: And I did like the way that you contrasted Eloise and Maybelle, Sarah's mother, because they're very different, and Sarah makes that comment that Eloise has a way, she touches, she hugs, and her mother doesn't do that at all. It's almost like she's very distant. And even to the point that she wants her daughters to call her Maybelle, not mom anymore. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's because she's turning, Was I think, 65 she was turning? She,
1: you know, she's either turning 60 or 65. I yeah, think. but it's one but, of those yes. ages where it's really a big it, deal. Right, and she's also been trying this new age. In book one, she's only referred to... You know she exists, and you know she's got to be a nut in her own way. Right. But, or at least colorful. But you never meet her in book one. In book two, she takes a prominent role. And you know that in book one, she's gone to a Mexican spa, and she comes back with new age thoughts. And that is where the Maybell. call me Maybell. they have told me that it means such and such, and this is my new way of thinking. And so, yes, she's facing the changes in her life, but she's also, you know, there's a reference to the fact Sarah and Emily's father has passed away. And I guess part of that came up because when I was dealing with my mom after my dad died, one of the things I found was she was afraid she was going to outlive her money. And I think that's very common in marriages that have been good marriages, but where the woman hasn't necessarily... And my mother actually knew the finances. That was the irony. But in a lot of them where they haven't known them as well. Maybelle knows the finances, but she's still petrified till the girls sit her down and show her that she is going to have to live to over a 100-something to outlive her money. And I've seen that so many times in my my Mm -hmm. family with my mother-in-law, with my mother. I wanted to bring that in. But once they showed her that she could go take trips, that's when she went to the spa and such.
0: She also seemed to be throwing her weight around with the banker, Lance Knowlton, who ends up murdered. Yes. Because she has money.
1: Because she has money, because she's known him forever, and she knows to the penny what she has. And so she knows if she's offering to co-sign a loan, because as we know in Two Bites Too Many, one of the plot lines in the very beginning is that Emily has come to the bank for a loan for a new restaurant. It is denied and Mabel knows it shouldn't have been denied because she was offering to cosign. And even on her cosign, she had more than enough to cover. She could have given her the money. So in this particular instance, Mabel is throwing her weight around there. But the irony is, she takes Sarah with her, not Emily, because Emily needs the money. Sarah, right. she figures Lance is going to be very nice to because Sarah is controlling Rara and Rara is probably one of the biggest bank investors, shall we say. Oh, I never thought about that. But you're right. Yeah. Because he wanted to keep Sarah's
0: money. Well, Rara's money because it's really the cat's, not hers, as well as.
1: As Mabel's. As
0: Mabel's. So that's yeah. one of
1: the things. Mabel's not stupid. She's playing the game and she's playing it to win.
0: Well, when you introduced Thomas Howell, the hotelier, and then we talked about Bailey, who was the banker that denied the loan, I thought, they're in cahoots together. They just seem to be in cahoots. And then Amanda, his secretary, was like, she's in there for a reason. You know, so you've got all these different characters and all these different plot lines going on. And it's it's interesting the way that it works out.
1: But hopefully not too confusing.
0: Oh, no, not at all. I mean, I've got them all visualized, you know, which... I tend to do when I'm reading, you know, I've made all these people look a certain way and act a certain way. So I hope that works for the book.
1: I think it does. I I think that's exactly how I'm writing it too. And sometimes, like in your case, you're thinking A and B or Bailey and Thomas are going to be in cahoots. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But the key is you think that for a few moments, then you think not. Then you think this is the bad guy and this is the angel. Maybe it's reverse. Maybe it's not that's the beauty of a mystery,
0: exactly, which is why I enjoy reading them so much. I think
1: mm-hmm.
0: now, um Jane, the nemesis for Sarah or bimbo is bimbo <laughs> is a good word I just hate to call her that you know I, since I don't know her personally
1: <laughs> you don't want to
0: <laughs> that, it It doesn't sound like I would like her. Is she going to continue to be their rival because I mean she's trying to open her own restaurant too. Mm -hmm. even though she and Sarah's sister, Emily, have worked together along with Chef Marcus, who is Emily's boyfriend. Correct. But also a very good chef.
1: In Three Treats Too Many, which Kensington will release in September of 2020, you will find out, yes, not only is she still the nemesis, They've ended up with restaurants across the street from each other.
0: That somehow doesn't surprise me because she's always trying to sabotage. You know, she always wants to get that last dig in, even though she's not as good a chef.
1: That's correct. She's not, and so there's always going to be a little twist. Maybe you'll ask me back, and I'll give you more information about that book when it comes out.
0: Absolutely.
1: They've just signed me for two more books, so there'll be five in the series at least. I was
0: going to ask you about that. I knew that there was three in the
1: works. They bought three originally. And just a few weeks ago, they offered me a contract for two more. So the restaurants will keep playing in there, but they change. I'm writing the fourth book now, and maybe that restaurant of change is going to have some problems. We'll see.
0: Well, in the first book, they actually had it Mm burned, and that was due to sabotage, right?
1: As I said on book one, this was my own thing. I knew how to blow things up or burn things down. Book two, if you look at the acknowledgments, you'll see a lot of chefs are acknowledged Some of them are fairly well-known Birmingham chefs because I didn't know enough about cooking. I think, Linda, you've told me you enjoy cooking. And I bet you know, if you were in a restaurant, you would recognize certain things in the kitchen. One of my favorite instances was my friend Susan Mason from B&A Warehouse took me through in the back and spent a few hours with me. And she took me into this room, and boy, it was kind of cool. And everything was lined up so nicely. And we walked in one door, and we walked out another. And she says, well, do you know where you've been through? I said, A room? She said, No, that was a walk through freezer. And she says, if it not had the second door and you'd been in there, it'd have just been a freezer. Okay. Walk in freezer.
0: But a walk yeah, that makes
1: sense. But so you know, that's the kind of thing I wanted to make sure I got it right in book two.
0: Because there are going to be some cooks that read it and go, oh no.
1: Well, and that's one of the things I wanted. I stole from another chef in town, George McMillan III. I'm going to give them all credit because they're all good, wonderful chefs, food bar. I stole a concept from him and he doesn't even realize he gave it to me. He's a young chef and he's very good. And he was talking about having just put his restaurant together and the expenses of restaurants Each chef gave me something different, each waiter gave me something different. But he was talking about how you have to decide. You really want good equipment, but what do you put outside? And he had pointed over his bar to a light fixture. And that's That's in in the book book too. Yeah. And he said, I could have spent thousands for a light fixture, or I could spend one hundred and fifty dollars and in the dark with the lights on and people drinking, they're gonna look up, they're gonna know there's a light fixture, but they're gonna be happier if I have a better mixer in the kitchen.
0: But in a fine restaurant, which is what Mm -hmm. Emily and Chef Marcus want to open in Wheaton, you do want to spend more on the kitchen items than you would on the others.
1: Right. But I thought his line about the fixture was very telling. And so I decided to incorporate that in Two Bites Too Many. That's the kind of thing I needed to learn from real people who work that field.
0: Well, do you always have to do research when you're doing a new book? For me, yes.
1: I need to do research whether it's going to be the recipes I'm going to include because Sarah doesn't cook, but I have to find recipes that are going to be cooks of convenience recipes. Emily does cook, so I need to go the opposite way. As I said, I knew how to blow up something or burn something down, but I needed to know how to build the restaurant correctly and make the equipment. The third book, Three Treats Too Many, is going to incorporate veterinarian animal clinics. So I went shadowed a veterinarian for a day. You'll get all this information, and then you boil it down to the one sentence that you see in the book.
0: Wow. Well, now, your past life, you've been an attorney and a judge. How does that play with what Sarah is going through? Does that help you?
1: Not in the same way, to be honest, at this point. It's funny. I don't find myself—in my short stories, I can write more of my legal background. Mm -hmm. I write darker short stories. But in this book— I didn't want to make her an attorney. My second book, which is now standalone um, that should have played poker, that woman was a young corporate attorney, and I really stole from my own background, things I knew. Sarah, I need her to be learning. She's a receptionist and is learning about the law firm. I can make things I know part of Harlan. I can make sure that I get documents right or I could get the animal trust. That was a twist that I could steal. Maybe the average author wouldn't have thought that way. Oh, I wouldn't have. My legal background came into that. But those are the things I can bring in. I can bring in certain things like when she looks at the documents on a desk. She doesn't quite know what she's seeing, but she's smart enough to figure them out. So I can use my legal background to give the information, Mm -hmm. but not to have her interpret yet. Okay. Perhaps if she goes back to school and takes some criminal justice classes and all, I can uh, make her like we were when I first started law school. When you first started law school and you know nothing, you think you know everything, you take a course called torts. And the torts are the ones that are things like when you trip and fall and that kind of thing. So I remember that first week, we all went to Six Flags over in Georgia, and somebody would go... Trip, oh tort, or we'd yeah you know, we would do something of that nature, that kind of thing. I can have Sarah do down the road,
0: and you can talk to your sister about the cooking part for Emily, right? Yes, so you I can, can. Use that as well. Well, now what? Why did you make the switch? You've
1: given up legal, right? There were a number of things. I always wanted to write, and I didn't do it. Okay, let me back up there. When I left college. I went to New York with two goals in mind. I left school deliberately after three and a half years. I got my degree in Michigan. And I went to New York two days later with two goals. I wanted to get into the publishing field, and I wanted to get on Jeopardy. Those were my goals. But if they didn't work out, I was going to go to law school the following fall. So by night, I did law school applications. Things worked out. But I realized I didn't want to be at the bottom of the publishing heap. So I went to law school in the fall. The problem with law school is you learn how to write briefs and you learn how to write really boring documents. But I was still the one who wrote the skits for the parties or the volunteer groups I was in. But I stopped writing anything that was creative for me. And I periodically would say, I want to write a book, I want to write a book. So both family and friends got on me, if do it or shut up. I finally wrote Maze in Blue. And it was the first book I had that had been percolating in my mind. Maison Blue is a mystery set in the 70s at the University of Michigan's campus. It was something I really wanted to write. I had the idea, but I never sat down and did it. So that book must have taken 10 to 15 years to percolate and come out. A friend basically had said to me, if you are going to write this, come to the beach with me. Let Joel keep the kids. And I'm not going to do anything except say you have to come to dinner with me, but you can use my condo and you need to write. But if you don't do it this weekend... I don't want to hear about it ever again. Wow. Well, I wrote in longhand, Linda, 85 pages, five of which did end up in the book. But I knew then I could write a beginning, a middle, and an end in my head. It still took years till I wrote it. The book comes out, and the PR was things like Judge Wright's book. But I tried to keep the two careers very separate. That publisher went out of business. The book is still available because I had to throw it back up because I had all these months of speaking engagements but everybody I talked to said write something new. So I wrote that should have played poker, Carrie Marn in the Mahjong Players mystery. It sold to Five Star, but it sold... At a point where it did not make the calendar for that next year. It was going to be a year hence. Again, like I said, I was keeping the two careers separate. And to go back to your previous question, I'm sitting on the bench. And if you can imagine me with my reading glasses sitting a little above you in my black robe. And as I sit there, I have the lawyers after 23 years on the bench, very well trained. If I say, is there anything further? The lawyer answers, no, Your Honor. And I would do a very standard closing. On this particular day, a lawyer who I'd known from even before my bench time, he did what he was supposed to do. I said, is there anything further? He said, no, your honor. But his client raised his hand and literally said, yes, there's one more thing. I looked to the lawyer thinking, okay, let me let you get your client under control. And as I said, I knew this lawyer, so I knew he was capable of it. But when he went reaching up to the sky and looking up to the heavens, I said, oh, boy, we're in trouble in my head. And I looked to the client. and I said, yes, sir. What is it? And he replied, your honor, I just want you to know one thing. No matter how you rule, I'm going to buy your book. <laughs> well, I couldn't do what you're doing. I had to keep a straight face. I don't
0: know how you managed.
1: Oh, it was very difficult. You know, one of those bite your lips. And I know he didn't buy the book cuz I ruled against him but yeah, of course not yeah but I also knew the next book was due to come out in a few months I went home that night and I said to my husband we just got the last kid out of school nobody's going back we're at that funny point in our lives I'd like to work the numbers I can either follow my passion or I can keep my lifetime appointment We ran the numbers that night and I walked in the next day basically and said guys I just want you to know I'm leaving. I'm going to work out my docket, but no more cases. I think it's going to take six to seven months, and I'm out of here. And they all wanted to know what I was going to do, because the two who retired before me were 88 and 86. Wow.
0: And you're definitely not close to that no, at I've, all. So, uh, yeah.
1: I was just at the average age for the judgeship, which was in the 58 mark. I, it was going to be my 60th birthday, but I figured by the time I have got out, But I I did manage to get out a little sooner.
0: But you did that for 23 years, or was that
1: all of your legal career? No, 23 years was on the bench. The average age was 58, but I was very lucky because of a case of first impression of equal pay. I had built up a little notoriety and some other factors. So on the merit appointment system, when I went through the testing and things and got on the uh, ALJ roster, I was picked up at 36 and sworn in at 37.
0: That is very unusual, and especially for Mm -hmm. a female, I would think.
1: There were 13 females Who had been grandmothered in at that time? They took in 144 ALJs in 1990. Of the 144 that summer, because we were, and the joke was we were trained in classes of 48, 48, and whatever, because that was the room they were able to get in a hotel.
0: Oh, gracious.
1: But the entire grouping that summer brought in, um, we doubled the core, there were 13 more women. Well, now, good. today there are many more. Oh,
0: sure. but I mean, that's been a long time ago. Yes. So, yeah, that was unusual. And especially yeah. at such a young and, age. And there
1: are younger ones now, too. The average age has come has down dropped. some. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's still above that 30-some mark.
0: Well, did you hear all kinds of cases?
1: When you're a federal administrative law judge, you're assigned to hear more or less one of agencies' type cases, and the one that hires the most is the Social Security Administration. You're separate from the administration, but when people have gone through all of their administrative levels, they can ask for a, a hearing. When they ask for that kind of a hearing, they get an administrative law judge. Otherwise, you would have such an overflow in the district courts the federal district courts. So there's Article Three and Article Five judges, and that's mm-hmm. where the distinction comes in. So you might say we're the stopgap.
0: Well, you must have heard a lot of interesting stories over the years. I did. I would think that that would give you some material, you know, to even work with. But you didn't have to worry about murder. No. No. But the people must have been really... They were colorful. Interesting. Colorful. That that's a really good word for it, I'm sure.
1: Always oh, fun. Between that and what I litigated, I started out doing international tax for a corporation, which was why I was able to steal some of my corporate background for should have played poker. But then switched to labor litigation, which is a more people-oriented type law. So you see all different things. You see small towns. You see, because I was covering part of the southeast. Mm-hmm. So I was in and out of places like Mississippi, Florida, the Panhandle, Georgia, Alabama. You see so many different things, and they, and they stick in your mind. The short story there was the Agatha and the Anthony nominee finalist, The Night They Burned Miss Daisy's Place, that short story is a combination of the things you're asking me about. When I was a student at Emory for law school, there was a strip. And it's no longer there, but it was a strip of X-rated houses and that kind of thing, almost a red light street. And all the politicians would campaign, I'm going to get rid of it. And half of them were caught there.
0: Oh, my goodness. I mean, that's typical, I guess.
1: But so I decided to use part of that. But coming to Birmingham, Birmingham has such a rich civil rights history that I've immersed myself in some of that history, learning about it. And the story that came to me was to be telling it in the Birmingham area in the 60s from a nine-year-old boy's perspective. But I stole the street or the house that I used. I stole it from what I remembered of the red light district and how politicians would sometimes come to them. All these things come together to make a story.
0: And it makes it really colorful, too, because you're reliving that through this book.
1: So and like in Two Bites, Too Many, I, you know, I know what those squares look like. I know what those banks, I, I think there's a description you'll find of the bank, the woods. Because it's things. one of those
0: real old, really regal. And that is another thing that you bring up. Wheaton is going through where there's one side that really wants to develop a historic district, And then people like Mr. Rogers that you referred to earlier that has the dog Fluffy, he really doesn't want that. So do you find that to be true in a lot of these smaller towns?
1: Yes, I think definitely. I wanted to do, like I talked about a social issue, to me, that's economic development. And that's what I wanted to talk about in Two Bites Too Many. I didn't want to tell you, we are now talking economic development. But I wanted to show you the two sides and what the different philosophies are. Is it going to help the city, or is it going to hurt the city? How do you bring people to that side, or what do you have to do as compromise?
0: Well, I know you're going to be here in January, right? Yes, at I novel am. Novel Signing?
1: I am, and I'm looking forward to it.
0: Okay, what day is that?
1: It's a Sunday, January 12th at 2 p.m., and I'll be signing... And I'm actually, we're going to be doing a discussion. A friend of mine is coming in from Nashville, and she has written a slightly different type of cozy. And we're going to be interviewing each other. We recently had a very fun experience here in Tennessee at the Southern Book Festival. They put us together on a panel, and we had such fun going off against each other, riffing you might say, that we thought it'd be fun to do it at Novel. When they asked me, I suggested that we do it together. And they were gracious enough to say yes. So um, Beth, Jade, and Terrell and I will be there together. And I think it'll be a little bit different than just coming in for a signing where an author oh, standing there. But some of these stories and some of these anecdotes will come through there, too. But it, hopefully it'll be a little more fun.
0: Well, good. Well, we'll look forward to that. And I appreciate you being here today.
1: Thank you again. We could talk forever, I uh, think. Well, I've enjoyed you uh, so much.
0: Oh, well, thank you. It was just so easy. We've reached the end of our time today. I've been talking with Deborah Goldstein about her book, Two Bites, Too Many. The book is number two in the Sarah Blair Mystery Series and is published by Kensington. I'm Linda Lloyd, and this is Book Talk.
1: Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WIPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wyplfm at gmail.com or write to us at booktalk.com care of WYPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38111, or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of Book Talk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 License for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work, but there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.